it is always a good idea to read the scripture first before agreeing to be the scripture reader on a Sunday morning. And yet Madeline read such a long passage so well, so many difficult names. Thank you for reading that scripture for us, friends. My name is Charlie Dunn. It is great to get to be with you this morning. It was a joy to get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with many of you last Sunday. And, you know, in many ways, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Because every Sunday is an opportunity to celebrate that Jesus has died for us, that he has risen from the dead, and now the risen Jesus is at work uh, bringing his healing and his renewing power to bear in every area of our lives, including in and through our work. Uh, As John mentioned earlier in his prayer this morning, we're kicking off a new teaching series, and it's called Work as worship. And I think for many of us, when we hear that term worship, uh, our minds immediately go to that which we are doing together here this morning, when we gather to be formed, to be shaped by the worth of the awesome God who has rescued us in Jesus. And I know many of you are very faithful to this time of gathering for worship. That's very important. And yet think about this with me for just a moment. Let's say you were to have perfect worship attendance for the next 40 years of your life. That would be pretty remarkable. You were here every single Sunday. Over the course of that time, you would spend over 2,000 hours engaged in this setting of worship. And I'm sure that would be very formative in your life. And yet, if you are employed, if you work in a full-time job, And like many Americans, on average, you spend about 45 hours a week engaged in that work. In the course of that same 40-hour period, you're going to spend 96,000 hours devoted to that kind of work. Now, I recognize in this congregation gathered here today, not everybody is working in a full-time paid role. Many of you, I know, are, are doing that very difficult work of caring for children in your home, and that is no less a job and work, even if you might not be paid to do it. I know others of you might be retired, or perhaps you're currently looking for work. And yet, nevertheless, I'm sure there are jobs, there are tasks, there are responsibilities that you are entrusted with carrying out every single day. And yet, I think for a lot of us, whether you're in paid work or unpaid work, I think a lot of us often struggle to connect what we believe about Jesus, the work that he is doing in the world, and the work that we do every single day. Day, we might find it hard to really understand how can I approach my daily work as worship. I was talking to a friend of mine actually over dinner this last week, and I found out in the course of that conversation he had actually just been promoted to where he's now the head of his company. He oversees 15,000 employees, it's a huge amount of responsibility. And I love the way that he looks at this this work because he said, you know, I feel like my job now is to help this company to look a little bit more like the kingdom of God. 
that's a great way um, to approach this responsibility that he's been given. But, you know, he kind of called me out. He called out the church and other churches and pastors because he said, you know, I feel like as a follower of Jesus over the years, always the, the church is, is regularly saying, look, if you want to work for God, if you want to serve God in a meaningful way, you need to be a part of what we are doing here at the church. Right, come join this committee or come you know, serve by leading in this group or being a part of this ministry or program area. But he said he feels like the church does very little often um, to disciple and to equip him for how he can live out his faith where he spends the vast majority of his waking hours every single day. And I think a lot of us maybe struggle with that Two, how can we approach our daily work as if it were worship? And so we're going to be in this series together now for the next seven weeks, and we're going to be seeking to try to expand our vision for how we can connect our faith to our work. And we're going to do that by being in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I want to give a shout out to Alex Lamar, who's running sound for us this morning. Alex is an engineer, and I remember several months ago, he mentioned to me that, that he's a part of a workplace Bible study. He was meeting with some of his coworkers, and they were reading the book of Daniel together. And he shared just how helpful that was for them to connect their faith to their work. They saw a lot of relevance, and so I sort of tucked that away several months ago, and I'm excited to now come back to that together, to glean from this book what we can about how we can connect our faith to our work. So we're going to start that today, beginning in Daniel chapter 1, which Madeline read for us, starting in verse 1. You might have noticed it says, here's the context. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So to give you the time frame, this is 597 BC, 600 years before Jesus. And for decades, God has been warning his people in the southern kingdom of Judah, the Jewish people, their capital is Jerusalem. He's been warning them that because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their greed and their injustice, he is going to bring judgment upon them. And he's going to send them out of their land into exile. And in 597, God fulfills that promise. Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes and he conquers the Jewish people. And, and he'll come back, by the way, 10 years later and utterly destroy the land. He's going to raise the city of Jerusalem, completely burn it to the ground. But this first time when he comes in 597, what he does is he rounds up 10,000 of some of the more educated, influential, wealthy citizens in Jerusalem, and he takes them to be exiles off in the land of Babylon. And his desire is to assimilate them, to help them become Babylonian instead of Jewish, and he wants them to work in the administration of the Babylonian Empire. And you see, Daniel and his friends, they are among these initial exiles. And I guess if you want like a modern-day example, maybe it would feel for Daniel and his friends a little bit like if you were a Ukrainian citizen and the Russians were to come into your land, they were to, to conquer you, they were to kill many of your, your friends and your fellow citizens, and now you were to be dragged back to the city of Moscow to now have to work 
for the very government, the very hated government that has just inflicted so much pain on you and your fellow people. That is the position that Daniel and his friends are now in. They are working for this hated government, this government that has been hostile to their God and to their way of life. And yet, and yet this is the calling that God gives to Daniel and to his friends. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet Jeremiah speaks these words. He says, listen, I do not want you in your job of working for the Babylonian government, I do not want you to try to undermine or sabotage that government. I don't want you to withdraw from society and and try to sort of remain distinct from it. God says, I want you to plant roots in Babylon. He says, I want you to build houses and plant vineyards to give your sons and your daughters in marriage. And then here's the really key verse, 29 verse 7. God says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Do you hear that? In spite of the fact that these people are hostile to your God, they don't believe in your God, they're hostile even to your way of life, and in spite of all that they've done to your people to bring you here, nevertheless, I want you to approach your job in a way where you're going to work for the good of your Babylonian neighbors. You're going to work for the common good of the people in this land where I have sent you. That is the calling that God gives to Daniel and his friends. And that's the calling, friends, that God gives to us. You know, we sent out this survey on faith in the workplace. And thank you to those of you who took the time to to fill that out. Um, We want to learn throughout this series from your workplace experiences, your insights, and I really appreciated getting to read through many of the responses in that survey. It's not too late if you want to go and, and fill that out. But, you know, the very first question we asked in that survey was, do you view the work that you do every day, whether that's paid or unpaid, do you view your work as a job or do you view it as a call? Do you view it as a job or as a calling? And then what do you think really is the difference between what's just a job and what's a calling? And you know, the vast majority, not everybody, but the vast majority would answer that first question by saying, I view my work really just as a job. It's just a way for me to be able to pay the bills. I don't know that I would love to do it if somebody wasn't giving me a paycheck every uh, two weeks for doing so. And, and that's kind of our agreement. I do the work and they give me the pay and, and I'll stick with it as long as they do. But I view it really just as a job. And then to that second question, well, what do you think is the difference between a job and a calling? You want to know what most people said. Most people said what makes your work a calling is if you feel like you're really getting to use your gifts. You're getting to use your unique passions in the work that you're doing. And maybe even you get to see some of the purpose. You get to see how your job is meeting real needs. And, and if that's the case, then it's, it's very fulfilling. It's a calling. You know, I mean, who wouldn't want 
a, a work job situation like that where you feel like you're getting to use your gifts and your passions, you're seeing real needs met, and they're going to pay me to do it? Right? That sounds awesome, doesn't it? A, a lot of people said that is a calling. Now, here, here's, here's a little bit of a different language that I want to use, though. I, I, I want to say, we'll, we'll, call that, um, we'll, we'll call that what Amy Sherman calls working in your sweet spot. Right? Some of you right now, you are working in your sweet spot. You're using your gifts. You're using your passions. You're meeting real needs, and you're finding that very satisfying and fulfilling. Others of you, maybe there was a time, a season when you felt like you were Working in your sweet spot, maybe you hope that there will come a day when you will work in your sweet spot. Look, frankly, if you can find a job where you can be in your sweet spot, you can use your gifts and your passions to do that work, then find it. That's awesome. That's wonderful. But recognize what an immense privilege that is. Because, you know, not everybody gets vocational choice. I mean, even look at the world's population, 2 billion of the world's population, they could not even comprehend the idea of getting to choose the daily work that you do. They just do whatever their ancestors did so that they can survive, so that they can live. And, you know, not everybody is able to find a, a job where you're working in your sweet spot. Or maybe you choose you know, to do a job that's really not in your sweet spot because you say, well, it, it pays well and there's good benefits and it allows me to be able to provide for my family. Or, or perhaps you are able to live nearby two family members and that job allows you to do that. Or maybe it allows you to maintain a good work-life balance so that you can do other things that are really important to you. Not everybody gets to work in their sweet spot. And let me just tell you, in case anybody was, was, was confused about this, there's nowhere in the Bible where God promises that you will get to work in your sweet spot. Yes, God cares about our joy. Yes, he cares about our fulfillment. But there's nowhere in the Bible where it says that you're going to get to do a job that's in your sweet spot. But if you hear one thing from me this morning, let it be this. The determinative factor in whether your daily work is a calling versus just a job is not whether you're working in your sweet spot. It's not whether you feel like you're getting to use your gifts and your passions in that work, like it's very fulfilling, or even that you see how it's really meeting needs for other people. The determinative factor that changes your daily work from just a job into a calling is if you recognize that there is someone who has called you to do it. And he has called you to do it as though for him. That's what makes your work a calling. You know, there's a place in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul is writing to some new Christians in a city called Corinth. And these Christians, they're really excited about their calling. And by calling, they mean the, the primary chief calling of any follower of Jesus, namely that they have been called to belong to God through Jesus. They have been called to be his children. They've been called out of darkness into light. That's the primary way that the New Testament uses the word calling, to be called to belong to God through Jesus. And that's the most important calling in the life of any Christian. 
But you know, these new Christians, they're so excited about this calling to belong to God through Jesus that they're, they're, they're starting to quit their jobs. Some of them are even starting to quit on their marriages because they think, well, now I need to be able to work full time for Jesus with all the time that I have in my day to serve the Lord. And what Paul does is he, he challenges that way of thinking. Here's what he writes to them. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 17. It's a really key verse for thinking about how we approach our work. He says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. He says, whatever situation you're in when you become a Christian, whatever job you are doing, whatever work you're called to every single day, recognize you're not there by accident, that God has assigned you to that work, that God has called you to that work. Now, that doesn't mean that that is your only calling, your work. Some of us are called to be married. Others of us are called into singleness. Paul says those are very important callings. Maybe you're called to be a parent. Maybe there's things that you're called to do outside of your job, for your church, or in your community. That's wonderful. But where you spend the largest number, typically, of your waking hours is in that calling of your work. And Paul says you're not there by accident. God has placed you there. You might not be there forever. He might have something else for you down the line, but where you are right now, you are not there by accident. God has placed you there. Do you believe that? You know, you see that Daniel recognizes that this is true for him. Even though he's here in Babylon working for this hated Babylonian government, as Daniel describes the situation, as he writes about his life, did you notice this, this phrase that comes up three times in chapter 1? He says, verse 2, God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Why were the Babylonians able to conquer the Jewish people? Daniel says, ultimately, the reason is because God gave them into the Babylonians' hands. Then in verse 9, he says, God gave Daniel favor with the official. Verse 17, God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and understanding. What Daniel recognizes is that ultimately it is not the Babylonians. It is not Nebuchadnezzar who is in control of his life and his future. No, he says, God, the Lord of heaven, he is the one who controls my life, my future, Every detail of my life, you know, Jesus puts it this way. He says, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. Paul says in Ephesians 1, God ordains all things according to the counsel of his will. Your life, if you are in Christ, is not random. It is not accidental. There is a sovereign God who is working all things for your good, according to his sovereign purposes for your life. Do you believe that? You know, I loved reading one of the uh, members of this church. He, he wrote about in his, his survey uh, a season of time where he was in a job that he really did not like. And so he started using all of his downtime at work to get on the internet, to look for other jobs. And it ended up taking him a while. He said he, he ended up doing this so often, it became like an obsession for him, constantly looking for other jobs. And, and he began to think to himself, maybe, maybe there's a reason that God still has me in the job that I'm in. 
And he said he actually started during that downtime to pray, to read scripture, to ask God for wisdom and for patience. And as he began to do so, he began to think to himself, you know, I've been so fixated on whatever that next job might be that I've been missing. What is it that God might have to do in me and through me where I am right now? Friends, I wonder, do you believe that the work that God has given you to do in this season is work that he has assigned to you, that he has called you to it. Because that's where it starts. If you want your work to be worship, it starts with this conviction of calling, that God has called me to this work and to do it as though for him. And when you believe that, then it allows you to start to worship God through your work in at least two ways. Let me suggest these to you first. It allows you to approach the work itself as worship. Not just the way you do your work, not just the way you treat your coworkers as you do it. I mean, the work itself becomes a way of worship. You know, the Protestant reformers, they were really helpful um, in in helping the church to, to discover and rediscover this because for a long time, the church had been teaching that if you wanted to serve God through your work, really the only way to do that was as a, a priest or a missionary or a monk or a nun. But as the reformers read the pages of scripture, they said, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that all work is sacred, that God is a God who works, that God created work for our good long before the fall, long before sin entered the world. God made us to work just as God works. Think of the ways in which God works. God creates God works to sustain. God works for justice. God heals. God redeems. God reveals. He teaches. God is a God who works. And so the reformers said, when when we work, what we're doing is we're, we're reflecting the nature of God. And then they went a step further and they said, actually, think about it. How is it that God often goes about his work in the world? Well, he often does so through the means of human work, through those humans who bear his image. Now, to be fair, God doesn't need us. He doesn't depend upon us to do his work. If he wanted to, he could just send down bread from heaven, right? He's done that before. But often, how does God usually provide our daily bread? He does it through the work of farmers and the work of bakers and the work of warehouse stockers and truck drivers and grocery store shelf you know, um, organizers and the, the people who make the inventory software that ensures that enough food is in all the different store locations. You know, if God wanted to protect us through an army of angels, he could do that, but often he protects us through, through, through firemen and through policemen and government officials and soldiers who, when they're doing their jobs well, ensure our security. God can supernaturally heal. He sometimes does, but often he heals through doctors and nurses and dentists and paramedics and, and pharmacists. I mean, God sustains his world. We sang earlier, it's your breath in our lungs. That's true. How does God often keep the world running? Through the work of of public utility workers and government policy makers, through the work of of bankers and brokers and mechanics and engineers and IT specialists. God often does his work through the means of our work. And I wonder, have you ever stopped and asked yourself the question, 
How is it that maybe God is doing his work through my work to meet people's needs, to provide his common grace blessings to the world? Have you ever stopped and thought through the answer to that question? Or have you ever asked yourself the question, how does my work reflect God's work so that when God sees me doing this work, it actually delights his heart because he sees something of himself reflected back to him and that glorifies him. I I love the way one of the leaders in our church put this. Listen to this. Uh, He said, part of my calling in my work, yes, is how I represent Jesus to my coworkers in my actions and conversations with them. We'll come back to that in this series. But he says, more than that, I view the data science work that I do, which is fundamentally about making sense of messy data points and observations about the world. He says, I see that as a means of using my creativity to bring order from chaos, reflecting the way that I was made in God's image. That's how God's work works. That's how I'm doing my work. He says, when I do my work from this worshipful, grateful disposition out of recognition of the maker whose image I'm doing that work, I believe I'm fulfilling a calling from God in that as well. I love that. He's begun to think through, how does my daily work reflect God's work? So the work itself actually becomes a way second way we, we worship God that through the daily work that we do um, is seeking to do that work well. If you believe that God has called you to that work and you're doing that work for God, seeking to do that work well, did you notice in this passage we're told that Daniel and his friends, they end up getting paraded before the king because we're told they were actually doing their work better than their, their Babylonian colleagues. They, they were performing that work better. You know, I, I love the question that was once asked to uh, Martin Luther. Um, a shoemaker, a, a cobbler came to him and he said, how do I worship God by making shoes? And I love the simplicity of Luther's answer. He said, make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Really simple. We'll come back to the fair price later on in this series, but make a good shoe. Seek to do it well. Wouldn't it be amazing if the reputation of Christians in the workplace was even if people would say, gosh, they believe a lot of really strange things, but gosh, they are good employees. They work hard at what they do. They seek to do it to the best of their abilities. They're getting it done on time. They're team players. They go above and beyond to seek to do their work well because they're striving to do that work for the Lord. You can approach your work in the way that you seek to do it for the Lord. And here's one of the ironies, is that so often when you are working as though for the Lord, you might end up doing that work better precisely because you're not somebody who worships your work. Because your identity is not in your work. 
Because you're not defined by the work that you do. You might end up just doing that work even better because you're doing that work as worship, but you're not worshiping your work. And so let me end with this. Let me end with with how can we do that? How can we be a people who try to worship God through our work, but we don't end up worshiping our work? I think Daniel really shows us how in, in three ways. And I'll hit these as we close together. Here's the first. Daniel and his friends, they remember their true names. They remember their true names. When they show up in Babylon, they're given new names. Did you notice that? They're given Babylonian names. These are actually names of Babylonian gods. How about that for adding insult to injury? And it's not that they won't respond to those names when they're in the the workplace, but when they're together or when Daniel is writing about himself and his friends, they still use their Hebrew names because it's a way to remind them of their true identity as followers of the living God. And friends, you and I, if you are engaged in in daily work, we show up to our work and we're given names, aren't we? But you're given a name of, of maybe a specialist or a director or a chief or an officer or manager. Maybe it's the job title of being a mechanic or an engineer or a plumber or a pastor, professor, doctor. You're given a a title. You're given a name. And always the temptation is to, to find your identity in that job title. Often people ask you, what do you do for a living, right? They're looking to sort of define you by that title, by that name. And if you're a Christian, what you do then, the way you avoid worshiping your work is you remember your true name. See, my true name is daughter or son of the living God. My true name is child of the king. That is my core identity. And part of what we do when we gather for corporate worship is we're reminding ourselves that's who we are so that when we move out to the work that we do every day, we're not going to be as tempted to worship that work, but we're going to be able to worship God through that work, as we remember who we are in Jesus is the most important part of our identity. Second thing that Daniel does is he sets some boundaries around his work. This could be a sermon in and of itself, but did you notice all of that business around the food that he will and will not eat? You know, people have speculated, is he, is he not wanting to eat the meat and drink the wine because of kosher laws? Well, no, you can, you can eat meat and kosher laws. Some people have said maybe it's because the food was sacrificed to the Babylonian gods. But that would have been true of the vegetables just as much as the meat. And so the most compelling explanation I've seen is that the reason why Daniel chooses you know, grain and vegetables and water is because these foods and, and, and drink are more naturally occurring. Right? They grow up from the ground, water is, is there already. And, and, and maybe this is a way in which Daniel is building this conscious reminder into his life that while he is here working for the Babylonian government, he is here working for King Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, he is working for God and he is not dependent for his life upon his boss or upon his company. He depends for the good things in his life upon this God. And I wonder, I wonder for you, do you have any routines, any ways in your life that you remind yourself throughout the day that you don't ultimately depend on your boss or your company, but you depend on God for the good things in your life? Maybe it's praying before meals. Maybe having a conversation with your boss. Will you come to them and you say, I love this job, but I also love my family. 
And is there a way that I can do this job where I don't have to be available 24-7 every day to respond to emails or calls, where I can actually have a, a Sabbath, where I can be present to my family in that time? And maybe like Daniel, it's experimental and respectful, where you come and you say, hey, can we just give this a try? And can you see if I can still be able to get my work done and do it well, but in a way where I can also be present to my family? I can keep a Sabbath. How do you create boundaries around your job so you don't start to worship that job? And then here's the last thing. This is most important. Daniel and his friends, they trust that God is a God who is faithful to sinners. You know, why are they in Babylon? Well, it's because of the sin of their people. It's because God has brought his promised judgment upon them. And I think it would be easy for Daniel and his friends to conclude that God must no longer really care for them. And yet Daniel continues to worship. He continues to pray to this God. Why? Because he knows that God has promised that even though he should take his people into exile, one day he will bring them back. He will still be faithful to them in spite of their sin. And friends, if Daniel knew that and was able to trust that, how much more so should we? Having seen what Jesus has done for us, he has taken all of our sin from us on the cross. We're people who know that we're saved not because of our faithfulness. We're saved because of his faithfulness. We're not saved because we do perfect work. We're saved because of the perfection of Jesus' work for us, and we are able to rest in that. And what that means then is that on the days when we feel like we're doing our best work and the days when we feel like we've done our worst work, the days we feel like we've been most fruitful and the days when we feel like we've failed, even the times we have worshipped our work, we know that God's calling on our lives does not change most important calling that we belong to him through Jesus. And so let's pray and be reminded of that together as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your calling upon our lives. We thank you most of all that through you, we have been called to belong to the living God. And that is our greatest calling, and we rejoice in that this morning. And yet, Jesus, we recognize that just as your Father called you to that most important work that you came to do, that, that each of us have been called, each of us have been assigned at different areas of work and responsibilities. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to look at the work that we do every day as work that you have called us to do. We would see that we are doing it as though for you. Pray that we would grow into a people who are able to worship you through our work, to delight your heart by reflecting you in the work that we do to recognize how you work through us to bring your blessings to others, to seek to do our work well as though unto you. And yet most of all, Jesus, we thank you and we praise you 
that your love and your acceptance of us does not depend upon our work, but on Jesus' work for us. We take refuge in that. We rest in that finished work of Jesus for us as we come to the Lord's table this morning. We thank you, Jesus, that you did all the work necessary to rescue us from our sin. It's in your name we pray.